Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on the war in the Pacific from Pearl Harbor to the Battle of Midway. Our speaker is Paul Kennedy, who is the J. Richardson Dilworth Professor of History and Global Affairs at Yale. Paul is one of our leading historians, and he will discuss the battle between the U.S. and Japanese in the Pacific during World War II. Today's session will be a part of a four-part series with Paul Kennedy. Today's podcast will be followed with the Battle of the Atlantic, the Normandy invasion and the surrender of Germany, and finally the conquest of Japan. I expect this series to be spectacular. Buckle up. If you missed last week's podcast on the overturning of Roe versus Wade, check it out. The show was very provocative, and I received red-hot notes from both sides, which means I must be doing something right. Our first speaker was John McGinnis from Northwestern Law School, who evaluated Justice Alito's Dobbs opinion and explained Alito's application of his originalist methodology to the case. Our second speaker was Howard Husak, who is the Senior Fellow of Domestic Policy Studies at AEI. Howard spoke about the political implications of overturning Roe and why putting abortion back into the legislative process will likely decrease conflict in our society. Every month since the outset of COVID, I've commented on the monthly employment report because it is a critical statistic for evaluating the global economy. This month, U.S. employment increased by 390,000 jobs. The unemployment rate of 3.6% and the number of unemployed at 6 million is basically the same as pre-COVID in February 2020. The labor market is extremely strong. Employers are very challenged finding new employees, and they are scared that experienced workers will jump ship for more lucrative opportunities elsewhere. Wage inflation increased at a 5.2% year-over-year rate, still below the 8.3% inflation rate, but the concern here is that employees may be expecting similar wage increases going forward. The biggest surprise in the employment announcement related to the COVID questionnaire this month saw an enormous surge in COVID Omicron cases, yet the number of workers claiming that they were prevented from working due to COVID fell sharply from 600 to 450,000. And the number of teleworkers also shrank from 7.7 to 7.4% over the last month. And this is down from 25% at the height of COVID. So the Omicron case surge is largely irrelevant to the national employment trends. I think over the next few months, the key economic question will be, how will rising interest rates affect hiring and employment? All right, let's begin today's session with Yale professor, Paul Kennedy. Paul, can you begin your opening remarks with a brief summary of your new book, Victory at Sea? It's a Paul Kennedy, historian at Yale, one-volume account of the naval battles from 1939 to 1945. At the beginning of the story, the United States is one of merely six great navies in the world. At the end of the story, the U.S. Navy has come out supreme. Right across the globe, the sheer output of American production like a new aircraft carrier once a month entering the Pacific fleet by 1943, which quite staggered the mind. So please think of this book as about how at that time the world order of power shifts from being a multipolar world to being the single polar world, at least in naval terms, from 1945 onwards. My first question, Paul, relates to the importance of geography in World War II. Each major power has its own specific advantages and disadvantages based upon its geographical position. How does geography determine whether a country will be a successful naval power? 
From time immemorial, the geography of uh, contending naval powers has been of supreme importance. Whether you're talking about some power in and around Greek islands, whether you're talking about the Roman naval power in the Mediterranean, whether you're talking in the Second World War about countries which have a favorable geographical situation in regard to the sea and those which are more land-bound. And for those thinking about this in contemporary circumstances of the Russian Navy in the world today, it can either come out of northern Norway in the ice, it can try to get through the Black Sea or the Baltic, or it can try to get out of a distant place in Kamchatka. But compared with other sea powers, geography gives some countries disadvantages and other ones supreme advantages. One held a supreme advantage in all of a contest for European naval dominance from 1500 onwards, which was, of course, Great Britain, the island nation, has a superior number of ports on the western coasts of Europe, able to project that power outwards, not to be invaded by land. It had to be a difficult invasion by sea. The United States, Bismarck said, was one of the most favorable countries in the world because of its geography. 3,000 miles away from everybody else in the Atlantic, 6,000 miles away from a hostile Japan, or by the way, China in the Pacific, a benign neighbors to the north and to the south. If it was able to develop its sea power on both its eastern shores and western shores, it was in an incredibly favorable position. Japan, in a way, being an island nation like Great Britain, had many of those advantages too. It also had the advantages that if it expanded and was aggressive, it could go a long way into the areas where it could be dominant because it's the only modern naval power in Asia. Germany is one of those constrained, not quite landlocked powers, just as Italy is a constrained, not quite landlocked power. France, which has always been at a disadvantage in having to split its navy between the Western Atlantic ports and the Southern Mediterranean ports. So if you wanted to give grades, the most favorable, the United States, second most favorable, Great Britain itself, Japan advantageously positioned. The other three also runs constrained very much by geography. Before the start of World War II, each of the great powers had to decide what kind of navy it wanted. What was the decision-making process that led to their choice of inventory of warships? All of these admiralties strove for a balanced fleet. A balanced fleet would consist of battleships supported by certain other smaller but somewhat faster warships called heavy cruisers and light cruisers, protected by a whole array of impressive, fast-moving, fast-shooting protection ships called destroyers. Each of these navies strove also to have this new weapon, the U-boat, and the aircraft carrier. So the ideal fleet, Laurie, would have a combo of aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and some smaller protective ships, as well as the submarines. Go figure. Every one of these admirals constrained by budgetary demands, their treasuries, the rival services, 
and then the particular geographic circumstances to which we refer. Italy, for example, deciding not to have an aircraft carrier because it felt it could have enough air bases on land in the Pacific. Great Britain and the United States going ahead with aircraft carrier development, and then the Japanese swiftly coming along with their aircraft carrier development, even though there remained a strong battleship navy. Inside navies themselves, Larry, there were contestations between what you might call the three big lobbies, the battleship lobby, the aircraft carrier lobby, and the U-boat lobby. Great Britain was the leading naval power at the outset of World War II. What advantages did it bring to the table, and how did the loss of France and Norway in 1940 to the Germans radically change their war strategy? Was the UK like Mike Tyson, who made famous the expression that everyone has a strategy until you get hit in the nose? So you're talking about a great naval power, which has a vast array of resources behind it, everything from cable communications to a well-trained officer corps to a vast stock of all types of these naval weapon systems. The advantage seems to be enormous at the beginning of the war, and yet this superior naval advantage seems to be badly damaged by the knocking out of its naval ally, the great French fleet, the loss of the ports of Western Europe from northern Norway down to the French-Spanish border, the transformation of the balance inside the North Sea, because Germany takes over the Netherlands, Denmark, as well as Norway. And then to add to all of these confounding of the early plans comes along the entry of the war in the second sea of contestation, the Mediterranean, comes along Italy with Mussolini's very substantial and modernized fleet. So you go from having this superior naval strategic position at the beginning of the war in September 1939, to being like Mike Tyson's boxer, knocked around and finding that as you try to recover from that in a somewhat battered condition, there are two hostile boxers in the ring against you. And there may be a third if you're not careful, because out in the Far East, of course, there is the looming threat of Japan from 1940 onwards, the British feel they are juggling with the insufficient amount of resources, difficult choices. 25 years ago, I traveled to Moscow for the first time, and I had the opportunity to visit the Russian World War II Museum. And I was frankly shocked when the story that the museum told through its exhibits was a struggle between just two antagonists, Russia and Germany. There was little to no discussion of the U.S., Great Britain, or its other allies. And I realized that I, too, had thought of the conflict primarily through U.S. eyes. How can we take a more balanced view of the war? Yes, I'd like to make a remark about your initial comment and your visit. You're touching upon a major debate among historians still going on today about whether the Second World War was won on land, preeminently by the Red Army, with 85% of all German casualties occurring on the Eastern Front, or was it won by air naval power from the Western Allies? You may want to interview the scholar Payson O'Brien, who argues it's sea and air power, which explains the war and the Russian front arguments are exaggerated by Russians and by Western pro-Russian sympathizers. 
That aside, let's concentrate just on the naval strategic geographic struggle against the Axis powers, and Americans do not get this clearly enough. There is a major third field of naval air contestation that occurs in this war with huge, huge casualties and losses of aircraft carriers and battleships and everything else, which is the battle for the Mediterranean, which begins at the fall of France and the entry of Italy into the war in June 1940, rages through 1941, 42, and 43, before the Anglo-American forces take all of North Africa, move via Sicily into southern Italy, producing the surrender at last of the major Italian fleet. Initially, the British were set back because Italy, if you look at the map of the Mediterranean, of course, seems to be bestriding the center of it. How on earth can the British maintain their long former imperial lines of trade and communication, entering by Gibraltar, going past the narrows of Sicily, dangerous waters, past their own beleaguered little island base of Malta, and then going towards the Suez Canal. Remember, Italy also holds major positions and a huge army and set of air bases in Italian North Africa. So the struggle for the Mediterranean is one which Churchill believes has to be won. If you lost Malta, if you gave up in the Mediterranean, Italy and Germany would move against Allies like Greece would move into the eastern Mediterranean, might take over Egypt and the canal, might get to Jerusalem, God help the Jews there, if Hitler ever got there, his big ambition, and take over the Levant and maybe even get to the oil fields. So for the British, this was almost life, apart from defending the home islands, this was the second most important area of fighting. And when you total up the number of warships, of the Royal Navy, which was sunk in those three years in the convoy battles and the attacks upon Italy and other forms of trying to beat the U-boats, which came into the Mediterranean, the struggle is major. And yet the British claim in this long three-year battle some of the most remarkable battle victories of the entire war. And one in which they're very, very proud indeed is the attack by the Royal Navy aircraft carrier and the Mediterranean fleet at night on the giant Italian base of Toronto. It's all the way down in the foot or heel, if you like, of Italy, a major warship base which the Italian battleships and cruisers were lying there in the harbor itself. And due to superior British training of aircraft carrier landings and takeoffs, there was this incredibly successful strike by torpedo planes, which in the night dropped their torpedoes, surprising the Italians and devastating at least three battleships and a couple of heavy cruisers. This is the forerunner to Pearl Harbor, the Japanese naval attaché, in Italy who studied it and then reported it to Tokyo. How did the surprise attack on the Italian naval base Toronto compare to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor? A surprise out of the blue, the launching of carrier aircraft, which were three different categories, medium level to high level bombers, 
dive bombers and torpedo bombers. That is to say, aircraft specifically designed to carry the very heavy and powerful either 17-inch torpedoes a long way from the harbor itself. These were naval strikes from the sea, Larry. This was an entirely new form of naval air warfare, and it's not surprising that scholars have focused upon this. You're going to attack those big, giant battleships, unfortunately resting in their harbor, as the Italian battleships were in Toronto, as the U.S. battle fleet in the Pacific was resting in Pearl Harbor. You'd strike out of the blue. The aircraft would take off a long way from the actual target area. They'd come in by surprise. The carriers would make a run even closer in the darkness towards the area so they could pick up the returning planes and rescue them, as it were, and then head off into the dark. Surprise attack from the sea on the largest battleships and warships in the world. Next question. What were the Japanese war aims? Right. That's the best place to start. Why would Japan, a country that only had one-tenth the GDP of the U.S., choose to go to war with it? So let's begin with the national circumstance and the geography, as well as the political aims of the country in question. Here is Japan, a very large population, but not really able to feed itself. The first industrial power of Asia, enormously successful in developing its own modern navy and modern naval air force. The country which also had an even superior armed service, the army itself, which had ambitions to move not only into Korea, not only into Manchuria, but also further afield into China itself. Japan is a strategically torn nation, a powerful army wanting to move westwards, as it were, from Japan into the continent of Asia, and a navy which was wanting to be a contender for sea power in the Pacific against the British and the American navies. Japan was an ambitious authoritarian state which believed its time on the world stage had come. Why should the world be dominated all the time by those Western powers of France, of Britain, of the United States? Was it not time for us, Nihon, the imperial Japanese destiny to go forward? But if you were going forward, Larry, you needed to do it moving step by step down the east shores of Asia. You are moving into French Indochina with the permission and support of Hitler by 1940-41. Could you go further towards the great oil fields of the Dutch East Indies? Could you go further south, maybe taking out British bases of Singapore, Malaya? without those arrogant Americans getting in the way. And those arrogant Americans remember having bases in the Philippines, which looked bestride, looked as if they're threatening the lines of communication from Japan to the south. But if you decided in the logic chain of Japanese thinking, if you decided to take out the American bases at, say, Manila and in the Philippines, and the British base of Hong Kong in order to get petroleum, because you have none yourself, 
if you're going to take out those British and American midway possessions of the Philippines, what about that looming, dangerous American fleet over there in Pearl Harbor? At the time of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States had a very small army and navy. But the key issue was its potential. How did the Japanese so badly misjudge the American wartime response? There are two things in that. One is the larger consideration of the huge gap in GDP's share of world product of technological backup resources. But if you had decided that you were going to try to prevent this United States from coming into the Western Pacific and into East Asia, would you not want to knock out some of the critical midway points to make it all the way difficult? What if there was a naval conflict to knock out midway stations like the great American base at Guam? What if there was nowhere westwards of Pearl Harbor before you get to, say, the Philippines, nowhere where the Americans could stop? So the idea of knocking out an intermediate position, and that's how we could see Pearl Harbor as being, made a lot of operational strategic logic from the viewpoint of Tokyo. If you were going south and if you were going to take out British bases at Manila and Hong Kong, best to stop the Americans from interfering by knocking out their major middle of the Pacific base. All this is well and true and done successfully at Pearl Harbor. But again, Yamamoto, the most distinguished of the Japanese admirals who had been naval attache in the United States, who had been on a rail journey across continental United States and seen how wide and productive it was compared with his native Japan and allegedly have told a number of people, give me six months and I can run havoc in the Pacific. But after that, you'll have to settle for some sort of deal with the Americans because Yamamoto knew in the way that we know retrospectively that this American giant had the productive resources and the GDP almost 10 times that of Japan. Not a wise, grand strategical move at all. How did Japan surprise the Americans at Pearl Harbor? From a viewpoint of a military and a naval historian, it has to be admitted that the Japanese planning, execution, and preparation for this surprise attack upon the main American naval base at Pearl Harbor was one of the most superbly successful military acts in world history. The Japanese had prepared for this in a way by developing this carrier fleet of about six large fleet carriers and some smaller half-fleet carriers, training with these carriers in groups of four rather than individual carriers going out on patrol or going out on anti-U-boat ventures as the British were doing at the beginning of the war. If you had the best trained naval pilots in the world with the best equipped dive bombers and torpedo bombers at the time, if then your weapon of strike was so much better and coherent than other navies, and if you had determined upon this fateful way of striking 
immediately and secretly against the Americans and British to give you the initial advantage in the war. And if then you planned it carefully, that as the clock was ticking towards the decision for war at the beginning of December 1941, you sent out that carrier fleet into the North Pacific, keeping radio silence, following a route which would be far away from any American patrol aircraft over the oceans, going to a position south of the Aleutian Islands and attacking Pearl Harbor from the north, out of the blue on a Sunday morning at about seven o'clock where everybody was either jogging, fast asleep after the ballroom dancing of the night before, or looking in the wrong direction with the consolidated airstrike from six aircraft carriers. And by surprise, hitting and sinking so much that your first strike seemed to be an enormous blow against American naval power. Could you not then return safely to your bases in Japan itself? Or should you have gone on to strike further parts of the base and the Navy establishments at Pearl Harbor to make it a truly rounded attack? Next, let's take the American perspective. I mean, good God, we knew that there was deteriorating diplomatic discussions with the Japanese and that the risk of war was imminent. How could we have left the battleships at Pearl Harbor and our Air Force in Hawaii so defenseless? And how lucky were we that the Japanese did not follow up their initial raid with follow-up attacks destroying our other U.S. defense assets in Hawaii? The Americans were taking by surprise. There is nothing in all of these conspiracy works which said that Roosevelt or Stimson knew that the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor, but were willing to let it happen because they wanted desperately to get into the Second World War. And if they got into the war with Japan, then probably Hitler would come in as well, as indeed he did. But there's nothing in the many investigations here of the archives to suggest that the United States government at the highest level was taken by surprise at the news on the morning of December the 7th that the Japanese had attacked. The news that the Japanese would attack and the Philippines would not have taken them by surprise. The news that the Japanese somewhere in that week would have attacked the British positions in Hong Kong would not have taken them by surprise. This was a surprise attack. There were many instructions sent out by Marshall and others to the American naval and military leaders at Pearl Harbor. We were often asking them to go on the high alert and then come back down off the high alert. Kimmel and Short, the commanders at Pearl Harbor, were quite exhausted by these various instructions. Since you didn't assume that there was going to be an attack by an outside naval striking force, they feared there might be saboteurs on American warships resting in the harbor, link them all together so they could be protected. In the same way as you feared the Japanese American population in the Hawaiian Islands, maybe there'd be somebody who'd try to blow up your aircraft on the air bases. So line up the aircraft 
side by side by side. Don't deploy them at other distant, scattered places, but have them lined up so you could protect them from saboteur attack on the ground. And Larry, that means that you're like sitting ducks. When the Japanese flyers come over, they can hardly believe it. There's lines of battleships unprotected because the torpedo nets are down. Whoever thinks that anybody could attack, are you going to get a large Japanese submarine in Pearl Harbor? You didn't think of that. And all of these unprotected aircraft, because you're just thinking of one or two guys with rifles would protect these consolidated lines of aircraft and nobody else would attack them. Oh, my. Pearl Harbor was an absolute disaster, but it could have been a lot worse. The Japanese could have sunk the American aircraft carriers, which had left for sea the day before, destroyed the American naval repair facilities, burned our petroleum storage facilities, or worse yet, made amphibious landings and maybe taken the Hawaiian Islands entirely. The American forward investment was indeed in this gigantic complex of air bases and naval bases and submarine and oil installations and everything else they had at Pearl Harbor. So when the Japanese first successful strike knocked out the battle fleet, we have to ask ourselves, Larry, what did they not knock out? And this is what the criticisms of Nagumo and the other Japanese admirals for not coming back for a second strike when the Americans were sprawled across the ropes, to use your boxing analogy, what could they have done? They could have attacked some of the airbase installations more thoroughly, so the United States would find it difficult to rebuild. They could in particular have attacked the oil supply installations. Had there been a gigantic burning inferno of the petroleum reserves of Pearl Harbor, then it would have been enormously difficult to get it out. But when you got it out, what were you left with? A wrecked petroleum installation. What if you'd taken out all of the repair facilities of the dockyards, of the engineering works? And what also if you had managed to knock out the elusive and still very, very dangerous American carrier fleet of the Pacific? If you were going to see the enormous advantages and striking power of your Japanese carrier fleet, didn't you want to wipe out the American equivalent? And unfortunately for the Japanese Navy, those American carriers which were in the Pacific, and there were not many of them, most of them were still on the eastern shoreboard, but those ones like Halsey's great Saratoga were out at sea and could not be attacked. When they came back in, they could immediately get refueled and begin the process of trying to reestablish American control at least in the Central Pacific. A further thing to be remarked upon is a number of those American battleships were only partially damaged. Other ones could be recovered and rebuilt to more modern battle fire conditions. The United States Navy therefore could, after a year or two, have a reduced battleship fleet to be joined by 1943 of a much larger modern set of battleships by then, it had become clear that the war in the Pacific was a war of long-range striking carriers. It was not to be the Jutland battle of the future, 
of battleships against battleships. Alas for the battleship navy admirals who detested the thought of this. You have focused so far on the disputes within the U.S. Navy for resources and power. But even more important was the inner service battle between the Army and the Navy for resources and war strategy. Almost all modern armed societies have a division within their armed services between those with a preference for land warfare, those with a preference for sea, naval, maritime operations. And in addition, after the First World War onwards, there seemed to be this third arm, which was, of course, air power. And between the three services, there was intense rivalry, not just for resources, not just for shares of the budget, but for where you would fight the war. Naval men want to fight the war predominantly at sea. Land men, generals, want to fight it on land and claim that it is land power that counts. Apart from the case of the Soviet Union, which had a very small navy, all of the rest of these nations, Britain, Germany, Italy, France for a while, and the United States and Japan, all of them had these internal contestations between army and navy men and their services. Because it's not surprising, Larry, that when we focus upon how are we to wage the war against the Japanese empire and bring it down, the army, in particularly the dynamic, arrogant General MacArthur, knocked out of the Philippines, humiliated there, determined that he would return, gathering his strength and forces from Australia and New Guinea northwards, wanted to carry the fight by land-based or hopping across the islands of the Indonesian archipelago to Philippines and then to China. And the Navy said this was quite nonsense. First of all, we were knocked out with our fleet at Pearl Harbor. We're going to recover there. Secondly, anybody who looks at a map of the Pacific could see that you could go straight westwards from the recovered base at Pearl Harbor take out those intermediate islands like the Carolines and the Marianas and move more directly upon Japan. Why should we pay any attention to MacArthur down in his jungles in southwest, you know, Borneo? Stay there in Borneo, stay there in Solomons and stuff like that. Let the Navy and its carriers win the war. MacArthur would have nothing of that, of course. Why did FDR or General Marshall, who was chief of staff of the U.S. Army during the war, allowed General MacArthur, who managed the Army's war in the Pacific theater, to focus on his return to the Philippines. MacArthur's war plan seems ridiculous, fighting in the jungle so far from the key objective of Japan. Why not put all of American war resources to the Pacific with the Navy to pursue the island-hopping strategy to get to Japan as soon as possible? There are three reasons there, I think. One, the egocentrism of MacArthur and wanting to do it his way and from his particular geographic position. The idea of long-range, successful, amphibious warfare, island hopping across great distances between small atolls, looked very precarious. It was almost brand new. One or two thoughtful Marine Corps officers had conceived of amphibious warfare and island hopping, as happens in the Second World War in the Pacific from 1943, 44 onwards. That looked very risky. 
don't you need to be within range of land-based heavier bomber aircraft, such as the bomber aircraft squadrons which were under MacArthur's control down in Australia and in New Guinea? Secondly, there's a question of logistics. The British and the Americans, after all, do start off with significant logistical base resources by moving out of northern Australia across the waters to New Guinea, slowly developing and building up your resources there, being supplied across the Pacific from the Western American ports diagonally down across to Australia and New Zealand, which were not intercepted at all by Japanese submarines. So you had a safe line of supply. There's a certain amount of security of resource supply logic behind MacArthur. And there was the question of the untried nature of Central Pacific amphibious long-range warfare. And then you come back to the issue of the rivalry between the Army in the Pacific under MacArthur and the Navy in the Pacific out of Pearl Harbor under Nimitz, behind whom was the formidable head of the American Navy, Admiral King. Each of these believe they have a better way of defeating Japan. But then there is the supreme political operator of Roosevelt himself. MacArthur was so notoriously egocentric. Nobody wants him back in Washington. Nobody wants him to be in control of the operations which are going to happen in North Africa. Better give it to the more agreeable Eisenhower and try him out. So let us use sufficient number of American resources to send them new aircraft squadrons, new divisions of Marines and Army to MacArthur and see how well he does. But let's hold the cards in our hands and let's give Nimitz the chance to show whether strategic long-range amphibious operations backed by the new carriers in the Central Pacific Drive will work as well. And after all, if you think about it, it turns out to be very smart. If you have a two-pronged attack against that giant but vulnerable Japanese position sprawled across the Pacific, and one prong is coming up from the southeast out of New Guinea and onwards, the Solomons, led by MacArthur, and one prong is coming across the Pacific Central led by the carrier forces, a two-pronged approach is actually a rather nifty thing in strategical operational terms. The Geneva Convention does not allow for the assassination or murder of specific individuals. The Americans had broken the Japanese code and were aware that Admiral Yamamoto, the Japanese head of the Navy, was flying on a specific route at a specific time. And the order was given to shoot that plane down. That decision was approved by Roosevelt personally, as well as other senior members of the American military. How do you think about the application of the Geneva Convention to the assassination of Admiral Yamamoto? So I've always wondered, Larry, how far down in the levels of command and operational position does that Geneva Convention reach? Is it about making illegal the attempted assassination on the political leadership of the other side? 
or does it go all the way down to the naval leadership of the other side? If the British in the battle in North Africa had at any time discovered that, say, the great foe, General Rommel, was flying from an air base in Benghazi back to get some healthcare problems settled back to southern Italy and decided to send an attack to try to shoot down Rommel's plane, would that itself have been against the Geneva Convention? I don't know the answer to that. If you attempt to strike some part of your senior levels of the other side's armed forces, is that not just a regular act of war, common sense to reduce the effectiveness of the other side? Should we actually try to assassinate Hitler? Should we take out Mussolini? Or are the political leaders at least legally protected by the Geneva Convention? So I scratch my head as to whether taking out the head of the Japanese Navy, Yamamoto, was going to fly into the Southwest Pacific to do an inspection and to talk about the reconsolidation of the Japanese position. They're able to plan an ambush of his flight and to bring him down and to destroy him, that's for sure. I would leave for the legal scholars between ourselves whether that really is a breach of the Geneva Convention. However, once they have done it so successfully, they have taken out the most dynamic and the most far-sighted of the naval leadership of Japan. It's not surprising, perhaps, that in the months or so following that, nothing is done in any effective or creative way on the Japanese side. There's some scholars who would argue that at this time, the Americans are still not ready for their counteroffensive, at least in the Central Pacific Islands. There's time for a certain amount of relocation of Japanese resources. There may be time for using what is still a considerable amount of aircraft carriers, as well as the biggest battle fleet in the Pacific, to do more damage. They had a window of opportunity, and they didn't do it. Yamamoto's execution, if you can call it that, is part of a story. Indecisive leadership in Tokyo is surely another part of that story. You just spoke about Admiral Yamamoto's creative war strategy. What about the U.S. Navy's admirals? Take as an example Admiral Halsey, who ran naval operations in the Pacific under Nimitz. Below where Nimitz is sitting, controlling the Pacific War in the center, there is the operational campaigns of his carrier and battleship commanders, one of whom is the dynamic but impulsive Admiral Halsey. Like General Patton on land in the U.S. Army, he's so determined to fight and bring the war to the enemy that that itself is a resource. He is a leader who encourages his men and his subordinates. But being impulsive might mean that you get it wrong. Sometimes it might mean that you'd ignore your weather advisory staff when they say, don't go there because we might head into a typhoon. So that the track record of a dynamic Admiral Halsey, if you know everything about Halsey's typhoon, it's a mixed record. And some cases you might be diverted away in the Battle of Lady Gulf in the wrong direction. From time to time, Nimitz has to replace Halsey by steadier, more reliable 
carrier admirals to pick up the offensive. Next topic is the Battle of Midway. Admiral Nimitz and his cryptography staff set a trap for the The admiral was challenged by his colleagues for not being sufficiently aggressive. It had gone dark, obeying radio silence, just like before Pearl Harbor. Where was the Japanese Navy going to attack? The Americans suspected Midway, and over the radio, they mentioned falsely that the fresh water supply at Midway had been contaminated. A few hours later, the Japanese sent encrypted messages that the next big naval target had no potable water. Admiral Nimitz made the decision to send all of the American carriers in the Pacific to Midway. The head of the global U.S. Navy, Admiral King, was opposed to that because then there would be no American carrier east of Midway to protect the American coastline. President Roosevelt was forced to intervene and sided with Nimitz. What happened at Midway? And why was this the most important battle in the war against Japan? We are coming up very rapidly to the 80th anniversary of one of the most decisive naval battles of the war, the Battle of Midway, early June 1942, so 80 years ago. Midway is a small island, strategically located, but a considerable way westwards of the Hawaiian Islands. It's one of those stepping stones between an American strategic drive westwards out of Hawaii or Japanese strategic drive island hopping from the Japanese positions via Guam onto Midway and then perhaps onto attacking Hawaii. So it becomes strategically significant to both of these contending forces just because it is there. Japanese plan maybe going further to take the much bigger challenge of conquering the Hawaiian Islands, or whether you are going to conquer the Hawaiian Islands, you've got to move in and take Midway itself. By doing so, maybe you can consider from a Japanese perspective that Midway is a kind of tethered goat. It might tempt the Americans forward, the aircraft carriers, bring them into battle so you can wipe them out. So the Japanese Naval High Command plans an enormous, an enormous fleet attack in various categories from the carriers themselves to a gigantic battle fleet and then an invasion fleet. But you have to trap those American carriers first. From a perspective of Nimitz in Hawaii and reporting back to Admiral King and getting his support for what's going on in the civilian battles in Washington, from a perspective of Nimitz, you want to use this battle over the contested island not only to preserve it, but maybe to find a way of striking those terrifyingly effective Japanese carriers. The advantages the Americans have is not only just maybe two or three carriers, one of them a Yorktown coming in haste, damaged from the earlier carrier battle at the Kyle Sea, but the advantages of being able to read the Japanese naval as well as the diplomatic codes. This is the advantage that the Western allies have almost throughout the war. American codebreakers have been able to understand what the Japanese are up to when Japanese send wireless signals. Remember, the success of the attack upon Pearl Harbor was that the Japanese carrier striking force obeyed radio silence. If you don't send out messages, they cannot be intercepted and then decrypted. So if you know 
that the Japanese are up to no good and they're coming with major forces. And if you can guess generally where their forces are going to be, you don't know specifically where they are, you can send out your carrier forces to probe by sending out reconnaissance planes from your carriers. The Japanese are sending long-range reconnaissance land-based aircraft to figure out exactly where the other carrier fleet is. But if you know more about the other side, as the Americans do know more about the Japanese side, then even though you have not so many carriers and not so many carrier aircraft, you have this overall knowledge advantage, which may come into good stead if you can find those Japanese carriers and take them by surprise. If not, it's going to be a different outcome for the Pacific encounter at Midway and maybe for the next two or three years of the war itself. The Japanese admiral who had run the Pearl Harbor raid had made the executive decision not to send a second wave of Japanese bombers to attack Hawaii, took his winnings, and returned to Tokyo. At Midway, it was the same Japanese admiral who was in charge of this attack, and he decided this time to refuel his planes to attack with a second wave. When the planes landed on the carrier, all the jet fuel was brought to the surface of the carriers, and at that moment, the carriers were most vulnerable. At that very same moment, the American torpedo bombers who had been seeking the Japanese fleet were terribly low on fuel, and moments before turning back, they spotted four Japanese carriers when they broke through the cloud cover. Minutes later, in the Pacific, the war was won by the Americans. Let's recall that on both sides, you're just beginning to try to figure out the best operational way of using a cluster of aircraft and the aircraft carriers from which they are based against the other side's aircraft carriers and their aircraft. This consolidated carrier group of four carriers or six carriers, maybe you should send not the first strike of everybody's planes taken off from all of the carriers, but maybe you should send the first strike from, say, the first three carriers and keep a couple of your carriers with aircraft for the second strike when the others come back. So you are never always committed to either having your trousers down and vulnerable because all of your aircraft are coming back from the first strike at the same time. This, of course, is wisdom in retrospect. It's a wisdom that the American carriers can have two or three years later when they have four carrier task groups in the Western Pacific and can send two of the carrier task groups to do the offensive attacks while keeping one of the others in reserve. But in this grappling for understanding where the other side's carriers are, in this brand new world of long distance carrier attacks, one group's carrier aircraft against the other's carriers, 200, 300 miles away, nothing like this has happened in world history to give you any clues. You're grappling in the dark and even the decryption of some of the messages which the Americans can get about where Japanese are going does not exactly identify where the Japanese carriers are. Each side is sending out 
waves and waves hoping to attack. And then the carrier aircraft have to come back and be hastily refueled and got off the deck again. It's a very nail-biting experience. And the Americans, as it turns out, are lucky in the timing of the sending out of their attack waves and not to be detected by the Japanese reconnaissance aircraft. My next question relates to luck in wartime. Those American torpedo bombers that found those four carriers at Midway, and then the Japanese who were so unsuccessful finding the American carriers at Pearl Harbor during their attack. How important was luck in the War of the Pacific? Napoleon Bonaparte would be nodding his head like crazy at the moment. The anecdote is that when somebody pushed the name forward of a general who he thought should be promoted, and Napoleon said, but yes, but does he have luck? Is he a lucky general? He is one of the greatest military figures in all of world history, believing that luck counts, the star of luck. The Americans are incredibly lucky at Midway. It may well be said that the instruments they have, the amazingly successful two-seater American Avenger dive bomber, the aircraft carriers themselves, the particularly well-trained squadrons, all of those build up to be something which gives them an effective, devastating fighting force, but they have to find the enemy. And in the patrols at each side trying to find out where the other side was, each side of them launching strikes, each side of them trying to recover their returning squadrons, in this sort of one-eyed or even blind struggle there is this wonderful story, which is told again and again and again, of a particular group of American flyers about to return back to their carriers because they're almost at the limit of the oil tank endurance. And the clouds open down below, and there, here Napoleon's luck <laughs> comes into the story. McCluskey and the others look down, and they see this Japanese fleet of four aircraft carriers naked, naked because they are trying to recover the aircraft from the earlier strikes. No protective air combat patrols over because an another strike of American aircraft has distracted and taken away the resources of the overhead patrols. And so the American dive bombers can go down with their lethal bombs and just drop them right onto the open and exposed decks of the Japanese carriers. And so you transform this particular campaign fight in the war. The Japanese carriers are pretty well eliminated. One American carrier, the Yorktown, is destroyed in the Japanese counter-strike. A large number of American planes have to ditch in the sea because they go too far, coming back. The war has turned dramatically from a total Japanese domination to a total American domination after Midway because the Japanese carrier fleet has been so badly damaged. Not totally, but so badly damaged. And luck played an enormous role there. Thanks, Paul, for joining us today. That ends today's session. 
As a reminder, if you missed last week's episode on Roe versus Wade, check it out. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.